This morning I'm going to be teaching on modern day Pharisees. You know, the term Pharisee carries a negative connotation because of the way they're portrayed in the Bible. I want you to notice how John the Baptist and Jesus referred to the Pharisees. John referred to them as vipers. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verse number 7. Notice what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, in, in their culture, much like ours, snakes were always thought of as evil. When I see a snake, I think evil. Now, I know some of you aren't this way, but I am this way. When I see a snake, the first thing I think is the only good snake is a dead snake. I don't care what kind of snake it is. There's always the type of person like my dad that will say, well, we need those, son. They do this and they do that. Well, we don't need them around my house. But anyways, John was thinking in the same way, and he was referring to them as vipers. Jesus called them hypocrites. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verse number 13. It says, How terrible it would be for you teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you won't let others enter the kingdom of heaven, and you won't go in yourself. So whenever we hear the term Pharisee, we just naturally think of overtly religious people who are self-righteous, hypocrites, judgmental, and vipers. In other words, a snake in the grass. But is that really a fair assessment of Pharisees? Does the Bible really condemn the Pharisees along with all of their teaching? Or were there just specific things about the Pharisees that the Bible condemns? Well, let's take a look at Pharisees and let's find out. First of all, to understand how the Pharisee sect came into existence, you have to understand Jewish history. So what I want to do is I want to give you a brief synopsis of Jewish history from the time of Solomon until the time of Jesus Christ. Is that all right? Yes, it's going to be a little dry, a little bit boring, but I think I can do it where I'll hold your interest. During Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel was at its peak of glory. That was the pinnacle of their kingdom. It was the best it would ever be. Solomon was perhaps the richest king that has ever lived, and Israel became a world power under his reign. It was a great time of peace and prosperity. But after King Solomon's death, that all changed. The kingdom was divided because he had a very foolish son by the name of Rehoboam. And because of Rehoboam's foolish actions, the ten northern tribes rebelled and they formed their own kingdom. Jeroboam became their king, and he set up idolatry to keep his people from going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Because what Jeroboam feared was that his people would go to the temple, that they would begin to worship the Lord, and then they would feel bad that they had divided themselves, or they had withdrawn from this kingdom, and they would want to reconcile. So what he did is he ensured that they wouldn't do that by setting up this idolatry in the ten northern tribes. Now, the northern kingdom was referred to as Israel. Now, that causes a little bit of confusion for most people because when we think of Israel, we think of all 12 tribes. But what we need to understand is that when the kingdom of Israel divided and the ten northern kingdoms uh, formed their own kingdom, from that point on, they're referred to as Israel and the two southern tribes are not. So when we begin to read through the Old Testament, it talks about Israel. If it's after the time of Solomon, it's not referring to all of Israel. It's only referring to the top ten tribes. 
The southern kingdom remained under Rehoboam's reign. It consisted of only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The southern kingdom, as I said, was referred to as Judah. So whenever you hear Judah after the time of Solomon, it's referring to the tribe of Judah, but it's also referring to the tribe of Benjamin, that kingdom. Now Israel, talking about the ten northern tribes, they had 18 kings. And all of them were evil in that, that they encouraged and they allowed their people to practice idolatry. And so they were judged for that. And Israel came to an end in 722 B.C. Assyria conquered them, and not only did it carry some of them into captivity, but it did what it did to other nations. It also moved people from the other nations they'd conquered into Israel. And therefore, they intermixed. They married into those pagan people, and therefore they were referred to as Samaritans. Now, the southern kingdom lasted almost 150 years longer than the northern tribes. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt and became the dominant world power. And in July of 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down, the temple was destroyed, and the majority of the leaders were carried into captivity, and this became known as the Babylonian captivity. The only people who were left in Israel were the poor peasants. Anyone who was educated, anyone who had any money, anyone who had any power or influence was taken to Babylon. But in 539 B.C., the Persians conquered Babylon. They took control and became the world power. And two years later, Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And the temple was completed in 515 B.C. It was at that time that a new practice was set up by Ezra. A group of scholars began studying the Torah with the intent of teaching the people. You see, the peasants did not know Hebrew. In fact, as a result of the the captivity, those who came back, The majority of them did not know Hebrew. The only ones who did were a group who specifically studied the Torah. So this group of scholars began studying the Torah with the intent of teaching the people. These scholars became known as scribes. But they were also referred to as lawyers and sometimes teachers of the law. So when you're reading through the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and you come to the term scribe or lawyer or teachers of the law. That is referring to this special group, the one who did nothing but study the Torah in order to teach the people. Now, the synagogues were set up to teach the people God's law and for common prayer, and the scribes were the teachers. And what's kind of interesting about this is that Ezra was actually the first scribe that ever was. And then something interesting happened that caused the Pharisees to come into existence. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered Persia and basically the known world. In fact, his kingdom was just a little bit smaller than the Romans' kingdom at the pinnacle of their glory. So basically, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. And as a result, the Greek language and culture was pushed upon all the nations. This adoption of the Greek language and culture is referred to as Hellenism. How many have ever heard of the term Hellenism? Let me explain where that comes from. Helen was a legendary ancestor of the Greeks. So Greek citizens were referred to as Hellenes. So anything that was associated with the Greek culture was referred to as Hellenism. But the fact is, Hellenism was a danger to Judaism. 
And yet the priests, because of their political position, welcomed Hellenism. They realized that it was to their advantage to stay in good with the Greeks, and they also liked the education and the way that it had changed the culture, and as a result, they welcomed it with open arms. But there was a small group that recognized the danger of the loose Greek culture and its polytheistic beliefs. They became defenders of the Jewish religion and tradition. And they referred to themselves as Pharisees. What does Pharisees mean? Well, the word Pharisee means separated ones. They were going to separate themselves from the pagan culture and stay totally engrossed with the Word of God, the Torah. And they decided that they were not going to allow the heathen nations to destroy God's Word. Now, in the battle against Greek education, they began to develop a national system of education within the synagogues. Their goal was to teach all Jewish boys the Torah. And that's how the birth of Phariseeism began. Now, let me tell you what a Pharisee believed at the time of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees believed that God had called all Jews to be like priests based on Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. If you don't mind, go ahead and turn with me there. It says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now he's talking to all of the nation of Israel when he says, you shall be unto me a kingdom, a nation of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So basically they wanted all of the people to live by the law, not just the priest. And for all of the people to see themselves as priests. They also believed that God's word should be applied to everyday life. They believed that as scribes, they sat in Moses' seat. How many of you have ever heard of Moses' seat? If you get a chance to go to Israel, you'll go to some of the synagogues that are, are demolished now, but they were from the time of Jesus Christ. At the very front of the synagogue, you'll actually find a seat. It is called the seat of Moses. Now, what that means as the seat of Moses is they believe that it was their job to teach the Scripture and to explain to the people how it should be applied to everyday life. So basically, the Pharisees believed that the scribes, the lawyers, these religious uh, teachers of the law, their job was to sit in the so seat of Moses and to teach the Torah and to show the people how to apply it to everyday life. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 18, verse number 15, and I'm going to show you why they refer to this as the seat of Moses. Moses replied, Will the people come to me to seek God's guidance? When an argument arises, I am the one who settles the case. I inform the people of God's decisions, and I teach them his laws and instructions. This is not good, his father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now, let me give you a word of advice and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representatives before God, bringing him their questions to be decided. You should tell them God's decisions, teach them God's laws and instructions, and show them how to conduct their lives. Now, did you notice that last part? You should do these things. And so basically what they thought 
was that men should sit in the seat of Moses doing these very things. Teaching the people the laws of God and teaching them how to apply them to their life. Now, here's what's interesting. Believe it or not, Christianity is actually built upon the Pharisaic system. That's right. Christianity is built upon the system that the Pharisees developed. It's built upon the idea that every believer is a priest. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 5. And now, God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are God's holy priest. Now, who is he speaking to here in 1 Peter? He's speaking to every born-again believer. He says, what's more, you are God's holy priest who offer the spiritual sacrifice that please him because of Jesus Christ. So Christianity believes the very same thing that the Pharisees believed. That the common believer is a priest. It's also, the church is, built upon the idea that God's word applies to everyday life. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, I like the way the NLT translates this, so if you don't mind, let me read the NLT. It says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and it teaches us to do what is right. Now, don't we believe that? You betcha. That's right out of the Bible. We believe that the purpose of God's Word is to straighten us out. We believe that the purpose of God's word is to teach us to do what is right. To teach us how we ought to live. Christianity is also built upon the Pharisaic idea that ministers are supposed to teach the word of God. They're supposed to teach people God's word and they're to teach the people how to apply God's word to their life. In other words, we believe, Christianity does, that ministers, people like me, pastors, sit in the seat of Moses. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. And so I solemnly urge you before God and before Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Now he's talking to preachers. Preach the word of God. Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. So basically, Christianity is set upon the premise that ministers are supposed to sit in the seat of Moses. We are supposed to teach God's Word to you and to teach you how to apply it to your personal life. How you should be taking the Word of God and putting it into application in everything that you do. That's good. Those are basically the duties of the minister. Now, let me show you some more interesting things about the Pharisees in the time of Jesus. Things that you probably didn't know. There were Pharisees that actually fellowshiped and dined with Jesus. I'm going to give you three scriptures to prove this. Look with me first in Luke chapter 7, verse number 36. It says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Of course, the Pharisee was appalled that Jesus allowed the sinful woman to wash his feet. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't judge Jesus, but I want you to see that Pharisees came, and they fellowshiped with Jesus, and they ate with him. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 37. 
And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. The Pharisee marveled that he didn't wash first. Oh my gosh. Again, we're seeing this Pharisaic attitude come out. But the thing that I want you to see is that they ate with Jesus. They fellowshiped with him. Now let's look at one more. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse number 1. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. The Pharisees wanted to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But the whole thing that I want you to see is many of the Pharisees fellowship with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. Did they judge him? Of course they did. We're going to find out why in a little bit. But they did spend time with him. There were also certain Pharisees that warned Jesus of danger. Look with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying to him, Get out of here and depart thence, for Herod will kill thee. Now, do you notice what's happening here? Obviously, these Pharisees, they're concerned about Jesus. And they're concerned about the danger that he might be in, so they're actually warning him. So there were some Pharisees that were actually good guys. And some of the Pharisees even became believers after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you would, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse number 5. Then some of the believers, these are believers, then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Wait a minute. Some of the Pharisees were believers? You betcha. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Now, why, in the, why would the Pharisees be so concerned about this? Because they were so intent on following God's word and applying God's word to everyday life. So in their minds, if these Greeks, these Gentiles, these barbarians are going to become believers, they need to follow the Torah. But the thing that I want you to catch out of Acts chapter 15 is that many of the Pharisees were believers in Jesus Christ. They actually accepted him as the Christ, Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one. But here's the biggest shock. Paul was a Pharisee. That's right. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And I'm not just talking about before his conversion. I'm also talking about after his conversion. Now, I know many of you are going, oh, that can't be true. That's why I'm going to prove it to you. Most of us are pretty familiar with Paul's background. We've read through the New Testament. We kind of understood, uh, understand where he came from. So we know that he was a Pharisee before he was saved. Before he was converted, he was a Pharisee. Look with me, if you would, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul is talking about his former life, and notice what he says. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, what Paul is saying is if anyone would ever make it to heaven on their works, it would have been me. You know, it's kind of like when we say, well, if anyone ever made it to, he to heaven, Grandma did. And if Grandma didn't make it to heaven, no one's going to make it to heaven. You know, we think of Grandma's being saintly. Well, I want you to understand, Paul is here and he's saying, you know, if anyone ever had the chance to be confident in the flesh, it was me. Now he's going to tell you what kind of life he lived before he was saved. Here's what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Now, remember the two southern tribes? Who were they? Judah and Benjamin? They didn't enter... Uh, mix. They, they, they didn't marry pagans, and as a result of that, they kept the bloodline pure, so they weren't part of the Samaritans and many of the northern tribes who had intermingled, right? Right. You're supposed to say yes. So he's telling you that he's a pure Jew is what he's saying here. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What does he mean by that? Not just Jewish by nationality, but I can read, I can study the Hebrew in the original Hebrew. In regard to the law, in other words, how do I interpret the law? What sect did I belong to? Well, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. How many of you could say, as for legalistic righteousness, or say, legalistic righteousness, I was faultless? Paul said that. Now, most of us are aware of that. But most people don't know that after his conversion, he still considered himself to be a Pharisee. How many of you knew that? I'm just kind of curious. How many of you knew that after his conversion? Anyone? I don't see anyone raising their hands. It's kind of interesting. Turn with me to Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 9. And let me just tell you that this was actually written 20 years after he was converted. Notice what it says. But when Paul perceived the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. Now let's be honest here. Paul would not lie. Paul had no reason to lie. Now, most of us to get out of a jam would lie, but Paul wouldn't do that because Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Romans. And he talks about should we do good or should we do evil that good may come? God forbid. In other words, do we do wrong in order to see good come out of it? Paul knew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that that was wrong. So Paul is in this council and he realizes there's Pharisees, there's Sadducees here, so he stands up. This is 20 years after he was converted and he makes this statement. I am a Pharisee. 20 years after his conversion, Paul still considered himself to be a Pharisee. That's proof that being a Christian and being a Pharisee did not conflict with each other. And yet most of the time, we don't think that way. We don't believe that because we read through the Gospels and all we see is Jesus sharply condemning the Pharisees. All we see is John the Baptist calling them out. So why was Jesus so harsh on the Pharisees? Well, actually, he was only harsh on one group of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisee religion was divided into two major schools. You had the school of Shammai, who was founded by the rabbi Shammai. And you had the school of Hillel, which was founded by the rabbi Hillel. Now, which school did Paul go to? What part of the, the Pharisees was he, or which group was he a part of? Hillel. That's very important. Now, the group that Jesus continually condemned was the Pharisees from the school of Shammai. Because that group was very legalistic. They were so rigid that they were unforgiving to anyone and there was no love as a part of their theology. Which brings us to why Jesus was so hard on this specific group of Pharisees. 
The reason Jesus was so hard on this group was because they believed in following the letter of the law rather than the intent of the law. And of course, Jesus continually butted heads with them over this. Let me give you an example, and then we're going to spin off of this example. But I want to show you why Jesus and the group of Pharisees from the school of Shammai were always butting heads. Look with me, if you would, in Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read four verses, verses 23 through 27. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is lawful, uh, which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was a hungry, was a hungered at he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread which is not lawful to eat but for the priest and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, let me see if I can explain this to you because the King James Version is not quite clear on this. He's talking about cornfields, but actually it really is wheat fields. What they would do is they would go into the wheat field, they'd break off the top of it, and this was legal by the law except on the Sabbath. What you would do is you'd take it and you'd rub it in your hands. And then those kernels would come loose from all of the chaff, and then you would pull it over and blow on the chaff, and it would go away, and then you could pop that in your mouth and eat it. Anyone ever done that? And that's what the disciples were doing. Well, what's kind of interesting about this is that the school of Shammai had come to the point in the oral law that they had described this as work. You were not allowed to do that because that was harvesting. This was preparation. And therefore, you were eating and you were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Does that make sense? So then then Jesus pulls out something that's really interesting. He talks about the time that David was running from King Saul. And when he went to the priest... And if you remember, the temple had not been built yet, and so the temple was at a different place. It was not in Jerusalem. And in fact, it was a tabernacle at that time, portable. And so as a result, when he was there with the priests, they brought out the showbread. It's all they had to eat, and David was hungry, and they ate showbread. And of course, Leviticus says what? The only ones who are supposed to eat the showbread are the priests who minister unto God. So Jesus brings out this instance. Now, I want you to understand something. The intent of the law was that no one should eat the showbread except those in divine services. But the reason the priest allowed David to do it is because David was serving God and they recognized that. So he and the priest thought nothing of eating the bread. Now, according to the letter of the law, they shouldn't have done that. But if you looked at the intent of the law, it was okay. And that was the point that Jesus was trying to make. That according to the letter of the law, David should have never eaten the showbread and the priest should have never offered it to him. But if you look at the intent of the law, what the intent of the law said is only those who are in service to God are supposed to eat this and David was in service to God. So when you look at the intent of the law, it was okay. And then Jesus makes this very profound statement at the end of this passage in verse number 27. He says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God instituted the Sabbath for the benefit of man. He did not create man for the, for the benefit of the Sabbath. 
So whenever Jesus was upset with the Pharisees, it's because they were more concerned with the letter of the law than the intent of the law. And that is the definition of legalism. If you want to know what legalism is, write this down because I'm going to give you the definition. Being more concerned with the letter of the law than the intent of the law. That is the definition of legalism. Let me say it one more time. Being more concerned with the letter of the law than the intent of the law. You see, from the school of Shammai, they were so concerned about keeping the letter of the law that they missed the whole purpose of why these laws were given. God said you should not work on the Sabbath day. Jesus comes along and he heals a person. And they look at him and they say, oh, that's wrong. And Jesus is looking at him and saying, you're looking at the letter of law and you're not looking at the intent of the law. The whole purpose for why this law was given. Now, let me show you what happens when you become legalistic. Let me give you Kind of the things that take place, the characteristics of legal people, legalistic people. First of all, legalistic people don't care about the burdens they're placing upon others. In fact, they'll actually place more burdens on people and they won't do a thing to get them off. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 verses 2 through 4. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the scriptures. Wow. Jesus said that. He condoned that. He was saying that's right. So he says, so practice and obey whatever they say to you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush you with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to help ease the burden. They don't realize that God loves people and his law was never meant to be a burden. The purpose of God's law was... To protect them. Remember, we, we, we were teaching in the book of Deuteronomy about the law. God's commands are given to us for our good always and to preserve us. And the word preserve means to protect. God gave his law for us and they're for our good and they're meant to protect us. And yet many times we forget that and all his law becomes is a bunch of legalism. And we put all this burden upon people. And we won't help them at all. And that's not what the purpose of the word was ever for. Secondly, legalistic people are judgmental. They're critical of everything that you do. They're looking for fault. And that actually becomes their mentality. Wherever they go, they're cynical. And they're just ready for people to mess up. They're just looking for someone to make a mistake so they can go, Aha! I caught you. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. It says, one day some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law arrived from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. Their whole purpose was to confront him. They noticed that some of Jesus' disciples failed to follow the usual Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as is required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they eat nothing bought from the market unless they have immersed their hands in water. This is but one of the many traditions they have clung to, such as the ceremony of washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples follow our age-old customs? For they eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, You hypocrites. Isaiah was prophesying about you when he said, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they replace God's commands with their own man-made teachings. Wow. Disciples didn't wash their hands, and boy, did they jump on that, and they were quick to point that out. But what's interesting is they elevated their own man-made traditions to the level of God's Word. Did you notice that in verse number 7? Jesus said, their worship is a farce, for they replace God's commands with their own man-made teachings. And let me tell you, legalistic people do that. Because they are so critical of everyone else, before long they try to start elevating themselves above everyone else. And so now they start bragging, I don't go to movies, I don't go to ball games. I don't go here and I don't go there because that's evil. And pretty soon all of these things they elevate above God's word. And Jesus pointed that out. And he said, that's the problem with legalism. You guys are so judgmental. You're looking for wrong. And therefore, you elevate your own teachings to the point where it's above God's word. And legalistic people do that. And last but not least, legalistic people will major on the minor things and minor on the major things. Have you ever noticed that? You ever seen a legalistic person? The things that are really important to God is not important to them, such as loving people, such as serving others, such as helping people. And that's low on the list. They want to do all of these self-sacrificial things. And so what they end up doing is they major on the minor things and they minor on the major things. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Notice what Jesus said. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. What are they? Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done. In other words, you're supposed to tithe, and you don't leave these other things undone. But you need to make sure that you major on the major things. You know, people don't get this, but it's so true. And it's not only for righteous things, but it's also for sin. We have the tendency to group all sin together and say sin is sin. And people, the Bible doesn't teach that. There are some sins that are worse than others. There are some sins that are worthy of death. You kidnap a person, you're to be put to death, even today. You murder a person, I don't mean self-defense. If you, if you kill someone in self-defense or you're in war and you kill someone, that's all right. Someone breaks into your house, a home invasion, and you pop them, Pop them to kill. The Bible says that, it, that if you come in and, and you have the right to defend yourself. But let's turn, the, the, uh, 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 turn this over and look at the other side. If someone comes in and murders someone, the Bible says that they're, that's worthy of death. Rape is that way. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to see this. Not all sins are the same. God doesn't say they're the same. But we have the tendency to think that, and we have the tendency to teach that in the church today, and that's not true. There are five different categories of sin according to the Bible. Now, let's go a little bit further. Doing the will of God. Doing these things for God, not all of them are the same. There are certain things that God wants us to do more than other things. And we forget that many times. We don't realize that. And that's what Jesus was coming in. He said, the weightier things of the law. In other words, the things that matter the most, you guys aren't doing. Now, let me put this in modern terms because we're talking about modern day Pharisees. 
Legalistic people are more concerned about the appropriateness of the songs that we sing during the service than they are about unsaved people dying and going to hell. Yeah, that's true. Legalistic people are more concerned about what people wear to church than they are about people feeling comfortable when they come to church. And I don't mean feel comfortable in the sense that, oh, I like this shirt. It gives me a lot of room. No, I mean comfortable in the sense that I don't have clothes to wear. I can't dress up. I just have these type of pants or these type of shirts. And, you know, legalistic people, they don't care about that. Man, they're more concerned about the clothes that people are wearing. And, and let me just give you a great example of this. This, this is a true story. We had a service one time where 10 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. 10 people made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I was so excited about that. And I came to work the very next morning and I received an email. I opened up this email and I'm reading it. And this person is so upset about our church. They had visited at our church. And trust me, they started pointing out everything that was wrong with our church. But the main thing was, they saw a man here who was wearing shorts. How dare a person wear shorts in the house of God? Now, normally, I don't reply. Normally, I just kind of delete those and move on. But I replied to that one. And basically, I came to the scripture where Jesus said that the weightier weightier matters of the law, and I I asked him, did you see that ten people accepted Jesus Christ? Did you feel the spirit move? Did you see how people responded? And then I explained that not everyone has a suit and tie. They don't even need a suit and tie. You know, you go in Cherokee County, you go to a funeral, most people are wearing nice jeans, cowboy boots, and a button-up shirt. That's dress. Why in the world should we come in and tell people that if you want to come to church, you need to wear a suit and tie? But legalistic people want that. Oh, we got to give God our best. They are giving God their best. But I'll be honest, the best that God wants is in our heart. Not the outward man. But we see modern-day Pharisees today, and they're the ones we're butting heads with. They don't know it, but from the, they're from the school of Shammai. And their rabbi is Rabbi Schmuck. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> but as I said, the root of legalism is placing the letter of the law over the spirit of law, the intent of the law. And that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 6. Notice what he said. Who also hath made us able ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. You see, we go back into the Old Testament, we can see that all of these things were pointing to Jesus Christ. All of these things were telling us what the Messiah would do. And the Messiah came to set us free. And so now when we look at the Word of God, we're looking at the intent of the law rather than the letter of the law. So how do you, in, how do you determine the intent of the law today? How do we determine the intent of the law so we don't become modern-day Pharisees? And I'm talking about the school of Shammai. Well, let me give you a general rule of thumb. 
In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, they had a lawyer that came to Jesus. And this lawyer asked Jesus a question. Now, remember what a lawyer is. A lawyer is someone that was paid. It was his job to study the Torah and then to sit in the seat of Moses and teach other people the Word of God and how to apply it to their life. So this lawyer comes to Jesus. We don't know whether he's a believer in Jesus or if he's maybe just coming to find out about Jesus or if he's trying to tempt Jesus. In many places, they came just to tempt Jesus. But even then, in trying to tempt, I wonder if they weren't learning from him. But this lawyer asked a certain question. He said, what is the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments that are in the Bible, what is the greatest commandment? Now, Jesus didn't flinch. He didn't say, well, give me a second to think about that. No. Jesus immediately responded. He said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he went further. And he said, the second is likened to the first. In other words, boy, it's just right up there, but it's just under it, just a little. He said, the second is likened to the first. To love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. Quoting one from the book of Deuteronomy, one from the book of Leviticus. And then Jesus said something else. He said in verse number 40, All of the law hangs on these two commandments. In other words, you can categorize every commandment under one of the two great commandments. Every commandment either deals with loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or it deals with loving your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to determine the intent of a particular commandment, you have to ask yourself how it relates to loving God or to loving people. Because the intent of that commandment will either deal with, in some way, loving God, or in some way, loving people. Remember what Jesus said. He said, all the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So, let me illustrate this rule of thumb using the Sabbath as an example. What's the purpose of not working on the Sabbath? What's the purpose of not working on the Sabbath? Well, let's ask ourselves this question. Of the two greatest commandments, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving people, which one of the two would this be categorized under? The first, loving God. So the purpose of not working on the Sabbath is to help me develop a more intimate relationship with God. God wants me to set aside one day where I forget about all the other six days where I'm in this rat race and all I'm concerned about is earth. He wants me to set this aside to develop a more intimate relationship with him. People, that's the intent of this particular law. Now, let's go in and let's start asking some questions. Because now that I know the intent of the law, I can see how to apply the law. But if I don't understand the intent of the law, I'll get carried away with the letter of the law and everything will become legalism. Can't go out to eat on Sabbath. Can't go to the lake on the Sabbath. Can't mow your yard on the Sabbath. Can't do this, can't do that. Why? Because now we're into the letter of the law rather than the intent of the law. And that's what Jesus was condemning. He wanted us to understand that everything that God gave us has a purpose behind it. 
We need to see that intent or that purpose. So, that's the intent of the particular laws for me to develop an intimate relationship with God. So can I mow my grass and still fulfill the intent of the law? Yes. I can if it doesn't take me all day to mow my yard. You see, I can go to church in the morning, come home, enjoy that time with God, still thinking about it, out of it, get on my lawnmower, uh, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, when I mow my yard, usually I'm thinking. That's why sometimes there's little patches of unmowed grass, and when I finish, I go, how did I do that? Because I'm thinking. But usually I'm thinking about God. I'm thinking about all of these things. I'm meditating on His Word. Sometimes I'm even praying as I'm mowing my yard. I want you to understand, I can still fulfill the intent of this commandment by going to church in the morning, and then if I want, go out to the lake. God wanted me to become refreshed. Now, we've talked about this before. Some people work so hard at playing on the Sabbath, by the time they go back to work on Monday, they're wiped out. God didn't want that either. But when I understand the intent of the law, I don't become so legalistic that I forget what the purpose of it was in the first place. Now, people, you can run this simple test on every commandment in the Bible. Some of the laws have a teaching inside of them. This isn't part of my teaching. I don't have time for it. Never mind. Next week, I'm going to start a new series on relationships. And this this morning was kind of an intro because Pharisees didn't love. They minored on the major things and majored on the minor things. And when it came to the two greatest commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, the love wasn't there. They were so busy doing the letter of the law that the things that really mattered didn't get done. And when Jesus came on the scene... It is so amazing to see the relationship skills that he had. And almost everything that he taught had to deal with relationships. The most important thing in life is relationships. And so what I want to do over the next four weeks is I want to teach you some of the relationship principles that Jesus taught. And what we're going to do, might not be able to get to everything I wanted, but we're going to, get, we're going to study in Matthew 22 the two greatest commandments. We're going to study what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how to love your neighbor as yourself.